Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Joyce Martyr. Joyce is a therapist, entrepreneur, adjunct professor at Northwestern University, and a national speaker. She's the founder and CEO of Urban Balance, which is a nationwide counseling practice and provides trainings on mental health and success for Fortune 500 companies. With Sounds True, Joyce has written a new book. It's called The Financial Mindset Fix, a mental fitness program for an abundant life, where she guides the reader through 12 essential mindsets for transforming your relationship with yourself and with money and financial success. You know, I got to be honest with you. I always get a little nervous when people start talking about prosperity and financial success. Is it just greed in disguise? Talking with Joyce Martyr, it's clear that her heart wants to empower people to be healthy, wise, and wealthy in the true sense of the word, at peace with money and with their ability to give to others. Here's my conversation with Joyce Martyr. You're such an interesting person, Joyce, that you have a foot in two worlds that I don't think come together that often. On the one foot, you're planted as a therapist, clinician, and at the same time, you're a businesswoman. You're an entrepreneur, and you write towards the beginning of your new book, The Financial Mindset Fix, to hell with the message that therapists can't both help people and make good money. So here at the beginning, talk to us how you brought your entrepreneurism and your therapy world together. Well, really, I think it came from my parents. I all I think we're all shaped and molded by our family of origin experiences. And my mother spent her life studying psychology and spirituality. And my father was an MBA. So I like to think that I'm a product of both of them. And I have loved working as a therapist. It has such deep meaning to me. It's been high honor and such a reward to help people recover and heal and thrive in their lives. And as a therapist, I really had a dream of being a business owner. And that vision was about basically having work-life balance for myself and 
have earning income not only when I was seeing my own clients, but providing jobs for other great therapists and serving more clients. And it was through my entrepreneurial journey that I really learned about the psychology of money. I started to see in my practice that as my clients were making progress in therapy, they started getting raises and promotions and starting their own businesses. And I was like, why is this happening? And I realized there's a powerful connection between our self-worth and our net worth. And in therapy, we're always working on people's underlying self-esteem. We all have self-esteem issues. And so I became really interested in the psychology of money, how our thoughts and emotions and behaviors around money shape our financial reality. And I started to see within myself how I was self-sabotaging and dealing with financial anxiety. And I started to apply what I learned from my amazing clients to my own life as an entrepreneur. So thank you for recognizing that I have my foot in both camps. And I love empowering others to promote their mental health and also their financial health through proven tools and strategies from psychology. You mentioned that you took a lot of the lessons you were learning in your own life and then came to a place where you articulated them and you put them into this new book, The Financial Mindset Fix. And you write that you named your financial life at one point Penny. Earlier in your life, in your 20s and 30s, that would have been the accurate name. And that yeah. later in your life, you called your financial life prosperity. So I want to understand some in your own life, how you went from penny to prosperity in terms of your financial life, naming yourself that way. Yeah. So I found that naming my financial life is kind of like a mindfulness practice and it externalizes your relationship with money. And when my financial life would have appropriately been named Penny, it was the result of a number of things. I grew up with, my father had grown up in the Great Depression, so he obviously experienced financial trauma. And through much of my childhood, he was unemployed and clinically depressed because, because of his unemployment. And so I grew up with a lot of fear and anxiety around money. And that translated into my life as an adult. When I was in graduate school, the first day they talked about, you know, you're not going to make a lot of money in this field. And I had just signed huge student loans. And I think our financial life really mirrors our emotional and relational life. And I have some tendencies toward low self-esteem and codependent relationships where I don't always take care of myself and I may over-function in relationships. And that was happening in my business. And I was accruing a tremendous amount of debt, trying to support my staff and my clients and really suffering in terms of my own financial wellness. And I reached a point, a breaking point where I was in cash flow hell because my practice took insurance. The larger it got, the more money was outstanding in insurance. And it was terrifying. I dealt with insomnia. I dealt with panic attacks. I dealt with financial shame and anxiety and recognized that it was my ego that was preventing me from accessing support. 
I had pride. I was afraid that somebody would tell me that my business model didn't work. And so I suffered in shame and silence. And it wasn't until I lost my business partner because our business was in such a, a dire state and it was very stressful that I realized I really needed to open myself up to humility and to talking openly about my financial struggle. And when I did that, help and support came out of the woodwork. It's just like mental health, how sometimes people deal with shame and stigma and that help that prevents them from seeking help. I think the same is true with finances. And once I started talking to friends and family, my leadership team and my job and my accountant and even my neighbors and friends and family started helping me and supporting me and problem solving how to turn my life around. And, you know, obviously I'm a believer that we all need therapy at different points in our lives. And I've done a lot of my own personal work on shifting my relationship about my worth <laughs> and my limits with money. And I was able to turn my business around and successfully sell it several years ago for more than I would have thought I would have made in a lifetime. So I went from thinking I would have to file bankruptcy to really transforming to a life of abundance. And it was by applying these skills that I learned through my own journey and through my clients. That's when my money became prosperity. Right. There's a lot there and I, and I want to pull some of it out. But before we do, I want to address that person who says, hold on a second. This whole connection between mental health and financial health, I feel a little uncomfortable. I know some people who have inherited a lot of money and they don't seem very mentally healthy to me, yet they have a lot of financial health. And it seems like having this direct one-to-one -one correlation is maybe overstated, or maybe they're not understanding you correctly. So I wonder if you could clarify that. Absolutely. Well, Susie Orman, the financial you know, advisor and author, she said that she noticed herself that self-worth leads to net worth, but it doesn't work the other way around. So people can have a lot of money and not have self-worth and self-worth is internal. So our egos identify with our bank accounts and our titles and our external appearance, but our self-worth is internal and we are all innately deserving of prosperity and abundance. So I'm not saying that uh, financial wellness is going to uh, make you happy. It certainly does reduce your stressors, but there's a huge relationship right now in the pandemic. People are suffering from financial post-traumatic stress disorder. So things like business decline or unemployment or ha losing a home to short sale or foreclosure, those are financial traumas and they trigger mental health symptoms of trauma, depression, and anxiety. And when people suffer from mental health issues, which I think we all do at different points in our lives to various degrees, it negatively impacts how we put ourselves out in the world and how we assert ourselves, it, it affects our confidence levels and our relationships. So if we promote our mental health and our mental fitness, just like we would our physical fitness, we can use those psychological strengths to 
align ourselves with work in the world that is going to better our lives and better our world, and we will financially prosper. Okay, I'm going to keep going a little bit down this lane, if that's okay. Do you think it's possible somebody could have really high, strong self-worth, really strong, they feel good in who they are, but they're just not interested in the world of financial success. It's not of interest to them. They're happy to live simply on very little money. It's just not part of what they're interested in. What do you think about that? I think that, you know, to each his own. And I think that that it's most important for people to be content and well and mentally and physically healthy. But I think that financial health has some criticisms. You know, sometimes there's stigma even for people who are wealthy, like that that's bad or that's selfish or that's greedy. But my philosophy is that when we work in a way where we are aligning our unique gifts with a need in the world to the greatest extent possible, that we are fostering an abundant life, not only for ourselves, but that there's a ripple effect of goodness in the world. You can employ jobs, you can be a philanthropist, you can give to charities, you can volunteer. And so it's about living bigger so that we can all be part of positive change in the world. And so, you know, people may not feel like they need more money, but they might not recognize that if they had that, they could be of greater service to causes that are really meaningful and important to them. Now, in the book, you go through 12 different mindsets that we can develop that affect our mental health, our relationships, and our prosperity. And we're not going to have time to go into all 12 of them. I'm wondering, though, if you were just to describe you meet somebody and you're like, wow, that person has a really healthy financial mindset. Wow, really healthy. How would you describe such a person? I think the first thing would be that they have abundant thinking which is my first chapter. In my practice, I noticed such a big difference between people who say, that's not possible, I could never do that, that's not gonna work, and people who blow the ceilings off of self-limitation and think beyond (laughs) and believe that more is possible. And so I think cultivating that abundance mindset is so important. In cognitive behavioral therapy, they say that our thoughts precede our emotions and our behaviors. And so if we can shift our thinking to that bigger, more expansive thinking, it can really transform our lives. So I think that's one piece. Let's just Another, let's just pause right there. And yes. that person is listening who says, yeah, guy, yeah. You know, it's not realistic for me to be like skies, you know, open sky possibility. That's not my experience. That's not what's been happening for me. I, I mean, how would you help such a person embrace more of a attitude of possibility? I love the concepts from narrative therapy that assert that we are both the protagonist and also the author of our own life story. So I have a really healthy belief in self-fulfilling prophecy after treating thousands of clients over 20 years. And if somebody is telling themselves that that's not possible for them, it's not. It's not going to be. That's the narrative that they've created for themselves. So we have to be really 
careful about our money story and our life story and recognize that we have the power to rewrite it and to welcome a greater life of abundance. Okay, so let's go back to this person who has a very healthy financial mindset. How else would you describe this, this mythic person? Yes. And we're all works in progress, right? Yeah. So my book is very much about balance and and addressing these points at you know in, at different times in your life, et cetera. But I think another important piece is about being financially conscious. And that involves mindfulness and being present. So it's about being more aware in your financial life. I think many of us suffer from financial denial and we don't know how much money we owe. We don't know what interest we're paying. We aren't conscious of the fees or maybe our overspending and things like that. So by applying mindfulness to finance, you can develop more consciousness of your spending, your saving, and your financial plan for the future. So I think that's really important as well. But let's talk some about that because I did feel a little bit uh, in going through the book, it definitely got into the nits and grits of my financial life. And it was a bit like going to a financial doctor who was taking my temperature and checking out my heart rhythms and, you know, palpating. So what are the most important kind of the medical exam we need to do on ourselves so that we know we're being mindful of the most important parts of our financial health? Well, in the book, I have a financial health wheel, and each spoke of the wheel is a different aspect of our financial life. And I have a ton of these self-assessment tool wheels throughout the book. And so I think those are really great ways to have that kind of financial health, mental health tune up and see how you're doing and understand your areas of needed growth and, and work. So I think with in terms of mindfulness, I also enjoy, I think it's so important to apply mindfulness in terms of detachment. So healthy de detachment is a mindfulness practice where we're able to kind of in a healthy way, it doesn't mean dissociating or detaching or that we don't care or not aware. It is being able to separate ourselves from the negative emotions of our about our financial life, to be able to not let those define us and to manage them to the best of our ability. So to maybe compartmentalize some financial shame or anxiety and to develop that financial resilience and mental resilience to be able to move through challenges like many people have experienced during the pandemic and bounce back and come back stronger on the other end. Okay, we're going to have to spend some time here on this, Joyce, because I think this is really big. A couple times you've mentioned financial shame and financial anxiety, and I think we need to go into, into both of these. Let's talk to the person who, when they hear words like financial shame, thinks back to some bad decision they made, a bad business deal that uh, they made, something like that. Maybe even shame just about the current state of their finances and the debt that they're carrying. What's your suggestion for how they can move through that into a, a new kind of relationship to those facts of their life? 
Well, I think one is another mindfulness strategy, which is adopting a growth mindset and recognizing that we're all works in progress and progress is not linear. We all make mistakes. We all have accidents, injuries, job losses, businesses that don't work. And that's part of learning and growth and really practicing self-compassion. I have a chapter on self-love and so really practicing self-forgiveness and extending yourself the kindness and compassion and empathy that you would extend to somebody you love very much and taking the wisdom that you gleaned from those experiences. I mean, I think most successful people have had a thousand failures behind them. So it's a journey and it's a path that has ups and downs. And so, you know, by, by honoring the shame and recognizing that it's a normal response to what you've been through. Our shame is often fueled by our inner saboteur. So I have lots of strategies for how to quiet that voice that's so hard on us and cultivate that more self-compassion that can be a positive coach to help you move through it. I think that is so important. Shame and anxiety breed in isolation. And many of us compare our insides to other people's outsides, and we don't talk about our financial worries and struggles when I think we all have them at different points in our lives. And if we talk authentically and share, I had horrible financial anxiety and financial shame. When I first went to talk to a CPA and get help, I handed over my QuickBooks file and I was crying. I was shaking, I was crying, I was embarrassed, I felt poorly about myself, and he was so kind and compassionate and really helped and supported me. And if I had not transcended that barrier to accessing support, if I hadn't moved through my shame, my business would have folded. I would have not been able to sell it for the way that I did several years later. So I really encourage people to just extend themselves a lot of self-compassion. We're all works in progress. We're, we are all imperfect and it's okay. And there are tools and skills that you can develop to move forward in a positive direction. Now, you mentioned your inner saboteur. Tell me more about that. I, I read that you uh, had a nickname for her, too, that you call her Zelda. And I thought, that's funny. How, how come you call her Zelda? And how do you know when Zelda has taken the wheel and is driving? So we all have an inner critic. It's that voice in our head that sometimes it comes from our parents, our past relationships, from religious or cultural teachings that is very, very hard on us. And oftentimes we speak to ourselves like we would nobody else. And so again, with cognitive behavioral therapy, we wanna become aware of our self-talk and how negative self-talk really puts our self-esteem down and it negatively impacts how we put ourselves out in the world. So I feel like naming your inner critic, which by the way, I, I adopted that from RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, RuPaul has the queens uh, name their inner saboteur and dress like them. And I thought that's brilliant because it's a mindfulness strategy that helps you externalize that part of yourself and recognize how it's negatively impacting your life. So I mentioned this during an interview with a journalist from Bustle, and she said, that sounds kind of absurd, but 
also interesting. And so she said she did it for a week. She kept a journal and she wrote this hilarious article about how she named her negative thoughts Terry for a week and she felt so much better. And her therapist said it helped her make tremendous progress. So by naming your inner saboteur, you, you become aware of how you're self-sabotaging. And, you know, I think our inner saboteur probably isn't going to go anywhere. It's always going to have a seat at the table, but we can choose to turn down the volume of that inner critic. And I named mine Zelda, like you said, and that's just a funny name I used in my childhood when, uh, I don't know, playing imaginary games with friends. And uh, it's helpful to think, to notice when Zelda's popping up in my life and to tell her to back off, <laughs> I've got stuff to do and to practice being more compassionate to myself in the way that I am for my clients. And I think a lot of times in my work with my clients, it's, they end up replacing their inner critic, hopefully with with some of my voice, which is affirming and empathic and empowering. And eventually that becomes their self-talk and then our work is done. You mentioned in the same section of the book where you're talking about the inner saboteur that potentially we could call on what you call an inner dream team. And this is that there's part of us, in addition to the critic, these parts we may not be as familiar with. And you talk about a positive coach inside of us, a best friend inside of us, and a loving parent. And I'm wondering if we could go through an example. So maybe somebody's listening to this and they're feeling, I'm just going to make something up. They're feeling a lot of shame about overspending, spending more yes. money than they actually have. And they're listening to this financial mindset fix. And they're like, God, you know, I don't want to get the real mindfulness facts about, you know, how much money I have in the bank. I know it's a negative number. They're wanting to tell their inner saboteur, be quiet, but they don't have their dream team online. What would these three figures say to help this person? So what would you say to your best friend if your best friend said, hey, I have $100,000 of debt? You wouldn't say, oh my gosh, you are, you're, you screwed up. You know, what's wrong with you? That's what your inner critic would say. Your best friend would say, you know what? It's okay. Like you've, you've done the best that you can. You've, you've accomplished so many great things. This happens to a lot of people. They would be normalizing and supportive and compassionate. So recognizing that we have the choice of either being our worst critic or our kindest best friend. And our loving parent, a good parent would want you to have financial security and wellness and want, you know, money is a resource to take care of ourselves. And a good parent would want you to have insurance and savings and things like that. So uh, it's about or in becoming financially literate. So that part would encourage you to move forward in those areas. And the positive coach is kind of like a personal trainer or someone that's going to hold you accountable and hold your hand and support you along the way as you try to shift your financial life from one of struggle to one of prosperity and thriving. Now, Joyce, at this point, you've worked with, as you've said, hundreds and hundreds of different people 
on the psychology of money as their practicing therapist. When someone comes to you, when do you know, oh, this is the turning point? They're on their way out of the bottom and they're going to be moving into a better place. Is there a turning point you've been able to identify or does it not really work like that? I think there is one significant turning point, and I went through it myself in my own therapy. <laughs> I think that uh, a lot of us spend a lot of time talking about other people. When I first started therapy, my mother starred in every session. Then I talked a lot about my ex-husband. And it wasn't until I talked about myself that my life began to change. So when we stop blame, and we practice acceptance and forgiveness, and we free ourselves of those narratives of how other people might have impacted us, we can then empower ourselves to take responsibility for our future going forward. And that's a really important turning point when, when we're willing to take an honest look at ourselves instead of blaming external forces like the economy or your age or your relationships or the past. And you say, you know what? I have some of these issues, some of the self-sabotage that we all do as part of being a human being. And I have the ability to change that. That's very helpful. Yeah, that's very profound. That's very helpful. Now, you mentioned that you went through a difficult breakup with your former business partner. And in the book, you write about how it was quite a journey for you to move through the blame and the resentment you had uh, towards her for the way that your business partnership ended. And I'm curious to know more about that uh, for people who are like, well, you know, I know I had a role, but I'm still sort of fixated on the role they had because they had a really big role. And it's because of them that I'm in the situation. I'm in. I know I had a small part, but they had a big part. How do we move further? And if you could share some from your own story of how you went through that to the other side. Well, that was a really traumatic loss for me. And I, in my mind, I would have much rather filed business bankruptcy than lost my relationship with my friend. And so the betrayal of her leaving the business was like a spouse moving out in the middle of the night. And it was a shock. I was experiencing grief and loss and a lot of fear about how I was going to run my company on my own. I had a lot of people leave. We were in a dire financial situation. So I was, I was hurt and I was angry. And you're right. When we're in that space, we can you know, blame the other person. But I also knew that I, I think in relationships, relationship problems are 50-50 and we all have a part. You know, I do a lot of couples therapy and my part, there were a lot of mistakes that I made. I, I didn't seek proper business and financial consultation, as I mentioned, because of fear and, and pride. And the result of that was losing my business partner. Had I asked for support sooner, we may not have been in that cash flow hell. And she may not been have been in a state where she was feeling so overwhelmed that she needed to leave to take care of herself. And, you know, there's there's other ways that I know I I 
didn't operate in a healthy way in that relationship. And I believe relationships come into our lives for a reason, even relationships that end or have you know, a traumatic incident in them. There's a lot of blessings that come from the learning. And so I, I've learned a lot about forgiving myself, working toward forgiving her, which is, you know, an ongoing process and continuing to grieve that loss and going through the loss of a business partnership. It's, I, I don't think people talk a lot about the business divorce and it is such a common thing that, that people go through and it's, it's very painful, but yes, we have to be willing to look at our own stuff. And for me, part of the blessing of that experience is that I learned for the first time that I was capable of flying solo. And prior to that, I really felt like I needed a crutch that kind of codependent part of me needed a sidekick for validation and, and support and, and really being forced to take the helm by myself, I learned to believe in myself a lot more and to trust my decision-making and I grew a tremendous amount. So even though it looked like a very negative event, I think some really important positive things came from it, including I think that was kind of the precursor to helping me know that I was capable of leaving a marriage that was no longer working for me. Uh, which was a painful decision. But I think I learned through my business experience that that I could do it and I could rebuild afterwards. And, and that was incredibly freeing and transformative in my life. Now, just to get kind of in there for a moment, because you mentioned working on forgiving her and how, you know, we're all works in progress and stuff. It sounds like you've maybe forgiven her a whole heck of a lot, but not 100%. I don't know. And that sounds pretty normal to me. But I wonder, do you have some idea like, I'm going to get to 100% and that's my goal? Or are you like, you know, look, this is pretty gosh darn good where I'm at compared to where I was. And I'm good with it. And, you know, it's all right. It's not, you know, it's real. I would say I'm at about 90% and that it still bothers me. And so, and because of that, I know I have more psycho spiritual work to do on that. And so I do spend a lot of time reflecting on my role in this, like even that I wrote about her in the book, like in examining you know, my intention for that was to share the lessons that I learned. But, you know, I also have to ask, like, is that part of my anger coming out or, you know, and, and work at understanding, work at being better, you know, at, at forgiveness and letting go. And so in my meditations and in my prayer time, I, I definitely, focus on sending her blessings and well wishes and having mantras that I forgive her and release her. And I think a lot of it too is forgiving and releasing those parts of myself and trusting that we are both on our paths and, and hopefully that we've each helped each other grow in some very important ways. So such an honest and terrific answer. Thank you, Joyce. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I want to talk more, here we go, about financial anxiety. In the book, you teach an exercise called the container. 
And I wonder if you can share that with people who are listening, who are like, you know, God, things are so uncertain, or I'm just the kind of person who has a lot of anxiety about money. That's just kind of how I am. I've been that way. How could they use this container exercise to help them? So the container exercise is something that I learned when I studied EMDR, which is a trauma protocol. And it basically is a visualization exercise where you kind of get yourself in a grounded and mindful space, maybe doing some deep breathing or a short meditation practice, and you visualize your thoughts and your worries and and then maybe any negative emotion that you're holding in your body any yuck about the particular situation and you imagine that you're putting it inside of a container of your choice so you can make it as big and strong <laughs> as you want so that you feel like that container can hold that negative emotion and you imagine putting it in that container and locking it some people blast it out in outer space or imagine sinking it to the bottom of the sea and releasing it uh, and then clearing your energy clearing your mind and body of of those emotions and knowing that you can revisit them when you need to but when we spend again with mindfulness we spend a lot of time worrying about the future and peace can be found in the present moment. So when we can take those future worries and visualize kind of tucking them away securely, we can ground ourselves in, in the peace of the present moment. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, here's my uh, confessional moment, and it leads to a question. My confessional moment is uh, I've been quite successful financially, and I have a lot of financial anxiety, both. Both Isn't are true. And my anxiety, I don't have a good reason for it. Like when I bring my mind into it, I'm like, you have no reason to be anxious, but I can feel it. I feel it in my body. And I pulled this uh, quote from the book, taking risks and managing uncertainty is what people do on the road to success. And I thought it's so important actually that we know how to work with financial anxiety if we're going to grow a business, we have to be able to take greater and greater risks. And I wonder if you can talk some about that for yourself. You've taken a lot of risks in growing your business. Tell us about that and how you work with your own financial anxiety when it comes up related to risks. Absolutely. So first, thank you for sharing that you deal with financial dis anxiety despite having financial prosperity, and you're not alone. I've, I've had clients who have had hundreds of millions of dollars and worry about their liquidity or worry about their children or various things. So it, it, our financial anxiety and our worries are not always rational. And so that's where we need to have these tools to manage them. And then in terms of financial risk, yes, as an entrepreneur, you, you're investing, or even if let's say you're investing in the stock market or you've bought a home and you're, you're investing in real estate, there's always risk. And so we need to develop that healthy detachment to be able to zoom out 
and not ride all the ups and downs. It'd be like if you invested in the stock market and a stock went down in a day and you have a lot of panic, you have to be able to detach and take a step back and trust in the process. And so I had people say to me, you know, are, are do you worry about the fact that you've built your business on being insurance friendly and that healthcare is of great uncertainty in our country? And I said, actually, no, <laughs> because I feel like if we if we worry about all of those things, we, we can't stay on our path. And I think it's that that risk that keeps so many people from moving towards something that could really bring great prosperity for themselves. So it's a skill where you have to be able to detach. I remember telling my best friend that I had uh, just put a $50,000 loan on my home, a lien on my home and a business loan. And I was feeling so anxious about that. And she said, would it help you if I told you that my husband put a, has $300 million in loans? And I said, dear God, and, she, and he's an enormously successful commercial real estate person. You, you have to be able to separate a little bit from, from that risk and know that in some ways money is an illusion and focusing on your deeper self, your path, your your alignment with your gifts and, and the need in the world and trust in the process and your ability to be resilient and move through those storms. Okay, well, hold on. In some ways, money is an illusion. Uh, I might be able to go with you there and know what you mean. And let's find out in a moment. But I'm imagining some people are like, look, money's not an illusion. Money's the actual hard, concrete thing I need right now. Maybe it's an illusion to you. It's a necessity for me. It absolutely is a necessity. And as soon as that came out of my mouth, I was like, oh boy, uh, I can see how there, that could be challenging. But that's something that I told myself when I thought that I was going to have to file business bankruptcy. And I was feeling shame and anxiety about that and, and a, a crisis of self-confidence. And I thought, you know what? I'm breathing. I have my health. I have people who love me. And I believe in a kind and compassionate world. And I believe resources are available. And I believe in recovery and resilience of the human spirit. And so I'm not going to let my mind allow my money problems to define me. My money problems are, are how I am. They're not who I am. And so in that way, I think it's an illusion in that sometimes we let money define our happiness, our wellness, our success, our identity. And I don't think that's what life is really about. I think money is energy. It's a resource. And it ebbs and flows like other resources, like breath and love. And we need to engage in it. We need to lean into it and cultivate that abundance. Okay. Now, previously in our conversation, you were talking about how particularly post-pandemic, lots of people are suffering from some form of what we could call financial PTSD. And in the book, you offer this statistic, 23% of adults and 36% of millennials experience financial stress at levels that qualify 
for a diagnosis of PTSD, first of all, it's a really big deal. That's a lot of people. Um, and that was pre-pandemic. Uh -huh, those numbers. Yeah. And then you write to recover from financial PTSD, we need to detach our worth from money. And I thought to myself, easier said than done. I mean, everything in our culture tells us that money and our worth as a person are intimately linked. We hold up the people who are wealthy and call them celebrities. So how do we do it? How have you done it? How is, and have you really done it? Like people say, well, you know, you can have a lot of money and say, yeah, my worth's separate. Well, it's kind of easy when you're, you know, when you have plenty of money, you can kind of say that because you have plenty of money. Right. And, and right. So we're all works in progress. So I can't say I've completely sure. done that, you know, but I think it's something that we need to keep in mind. And I've, I've worked with a number of clients who dealt with suicidal ideation because of financial yes. struggle or fear. And that's where I, I really have worked with them on, again, the mindfulness connection of, you know, money and our titles and our bank accounts, all of those externals are part of our ego, our, our mind's definition of ourselves. And our essence or our true self or our soul is the deeper spiritual aspect of ourselves. And I, I believe the, the truer aspect of ourselves. And so when we can practice mindfulness and we can, can connect with that deeper light within and observe the mind's thoughts about money and how that relates to our worth and our identity. That's what's, I think, an illusion. And so helping people realize, one of my clients said to me, and she's 65, she hasn't saved for retirement, she has a physical disability and her partner just left her and she's having extreme financial anxiety. And after some of our work, she said, Joyce, you've helped me realize I have so many internal resources and internal riches <laughs> that, that if I focus on, you know, I have my intelligence, I have my humor, I have my emotional intelligence, I have my wisdom. And using that to define who she is has helped her manage some of the crushing financial fears. Mm -hmm. You uh, write in the book about the power of reframing financial challenges in some way to see them as, you know, uh, another, you know, what opportunity, but you know what I'm saying. We can give me some examples of presenting financial challenges and how you've been able to help people reframe reframe what's happening in their life so they see it differently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think on a number of levels, I think, you know, I've worked with a lot of clients who've experienced financial trauma in terms of growing up in poverty or, you know, um, gosh, other, you know, closings of businesses and things like that. And so it's so important to help people recover and move through that by honoring their experiences. Like we're all shaped and molded by our earlier life experiences and our family experiences and our families have beliefs about money. And we've often taken on some of those money feelings and it affects our money story. 
And so we need to honor that and then also empower ourselves to rewrite it by using some of these skills in the book and change that financial reality. Another thing, Joyce, that I want to talk to you about, you've mentioned it a couple times, is this notion of financial resilience. And you quote the Harvard Business Review, more than education, more than experience, more than training, an individual's level of resilience will define who succeeds and who fails. So what do you think makes someone really financially resilient? So I think that that Harvard Business Review was talking about psychological resilience, and I think the financial resilience goes hand in hand. And the research explains that people who have had high trauma, but also have high support are the most resilient. So, and people who have had low trauma haven't had those challenges that are opportunities for growth and learning. And when we go through difficulty and we come out the other side, there's gifts of wisdom and also strength in knowing that we can persevere and we can overcome other challenges that come our way. And so financial resilience is the ability to move through financial storms. So like a housing market crash, like what happened in 2008, or the pandemic. And financial resilience involves financial planning. So having reserves, having savings, having uh, insurance and things so that if there is some kind of catastrophe that you will be able to move through it and bounce back and recover. And so financial resilience involves some, some preparation. And that's part of financial self-care. It's about caring enough about yourself to to take care of your future self so that you can be resilient down the road. I'm wondering if you could share with us a client story that you think is a really good emblematic example of your work with them on the psychology of money and the financial mindset fix. Like here's where the person came in and here's the work we did and what the result was. Well, I think the financial mindset fix is, is, a financial program, but it is also a mental health program. And the two both go, they go so hand in hand. And in the compassion chapter of my book, I, I share the story of a, a special client named Suma. And Suma had experienced trauma in her family of origin. She had experienced domestic violence. She ended up in an abusive marriage. She had self-esteem issues. And through some really brave and courageous work in her therapy, she did so much healing on herself and her self-love and her ability to take care of herself. And that had a profound impact on her career. She went back to graduate school. She ended up starting her own business. She became so much more assertive and empowered. She was negotiating. She was believing in herself. And so not only emotionally and relationally did she bravely transform her life, but it had a financial impact as well. So, and she's, she continues to just thrive and rock it out. And I just, I have great deep love for her. And each, each client that I've worked with 
it I've learned from their journey as well. And it helps me help other people through my speaking engagements and through the book and things. So different clients in different ways. I had one client that grew up in poverty and she had some hoarding behaviors because of living in scarcity in the past. And so we had to work with her on trusting in the flow of money and trusting in her ability to care for herself so that she could have financial peace. And then also really um, another person who went back to school, negotiated a higher, you know, a promotion in her life and higher um, salary and things and was able to, to provide a home and a lifestyle that was so far beyond what she grew up with, which was, you know, deeply healing for her on so many different ways. Now, you brought up this word, I remember now, negotiating, because, you know, in the book, as you mentioned, there are these different wheels that you fill out. And the book is, every chapter is a kind of self-assessment, self-look in the mirror and see where you are on all of these different factors of your mental, emotional, relational, and financial health. And when it got to the section about negotiation, I got very low scores because I hate to negotiate. I hate it. I loathe it. I'm a weenie at it. I say to myself, Tammy, you're going to have to put on your big girl pants today and negotiate this situation. So what could make somebody like me better at negotiating? How do I get, what's the mindset fix that I need? First, it's knowing that you're deserving and advocating for yourself in a way that you would somebody you love very much. And it's about having healthy boundaries in your financial relationships that shows respect for yourself and respect for the other person. And I talk in the essence chapter about healthy self-esteem and, you know, finding that healthy self-esteem where we're assertive, where we advocate for ourselves in a way that's direct and honest and clear. And I think as women, especially, we're socialized not to negotiate. We're socialized to be people pleasers and good girls. And I attended a lecture with the psycho or sorry, the soci sociologist that helped Sheryl Sandberg and with her book leaned in. And she was explaining that you know, women don't negotiate typically. And so it's a skill that needs to be developed. And it, I encourage people like baby steps. So it might be, for example, you're leasing or buying a car and you negotiate that they throw in the free car mats or the racks that you want on top of the car, or you're negotiating rent and you, you ask them for the first month of rent free. Or, or you're negotiating at a store. I once bought patio furniture and I asked them if they could throw in the, the covers that were a few hundred dollars and do free delivery. And I was, got those things. So once you succeed in that, it's very empowering. And uh, I, as cheesy, I think sometimes as Dr. Phil is, I like that he says, you know, the most is, that you get is what you ask for. And sometimes we shoot ourselves in the foot by asking for so much less than we deserve. And again, when we have more, we can give more. And, and so I believe I, I have obviously been a therapist for so many people and also students and people that I've mentored and I role play negotiation. 
and help them with that and help them develop the tools and the language and the confidence to be able to do that. And I, I'm a big believer in having heroes. So if you know someone in your life who is good at that, acting as if you're them <laughs> and taking on their, their bravery and using their language and words until you can really hone and cultivate that skill for yourself. Very helpful. Okay, Joyce, I'm gonna ask you another question. I've heard different people say that if you wanna have, we'll use your word, more prosperity or the abundance word, you can visualize yourself experiencing what it is you want. So if it's a certain amount of financial success, you can visualize as if it's already here, it's already happening. And I notice I have this sort of mixed response to that. There's a part of me that's like, but it's not happening. What am I doing? I'm doing some exercise. I don't believe in this exercise. Only, you know, people do it and then it doesn't come true for them. So is this really a useful exercise? Anyway, what do you have to say about that? Well, I think that we have to visualize where we're going, where we want to go. And I believe in if you had a magic wand in the most ideal situation, what would you want? And when client that that magic wand question, the miracle question is a tool in therapy. And it reveals what what people truly want. And oftentimes we settle for a much smaller version of that for ourselves. And that's us setting our own ceilings. And so by by doing that, you're expanding your thinking, you're starting to welcome the possibility that that could happen. And it's about trying it on. And I talk about an Adlerian practice in psychology that is called act uh, as if. And I did a workshop once where I had the people act as if they had achieved the success that they wanted to achieve. And to go around the room and talk to other people and introduce themselves in that way. And people were so uncomfortable. It took me a while to get them out of their seats. And they were like, oh my gosh, are you, you sure? And I'm gonna be kind of embarrassed to admit what I want. Again, shame creeping up. But once people started owning it and walking around the room and saying, yeah, I am a Pulitzer Prize winning author, or I am a the owner of a global company, they were standing taller, they were getting so excited, and I couldn't get them to stop talking. So I think it's about trying it on. I, I did that, you know, my my book, Tammy, I don't know if you know this, but it, it was rejected for a lot of years. <laughs> and so I walked around my house and I said, I am like Renee Brown and I am a speaker author. And my friend accused me of psychotic optimism, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I truly believe that by trying that on and believing in myself that that was possible, it really helped me persevere to rework my proposal and keep putting myself out there and be resilient until I found sounds true. That's a beautiful story. Finally, Joyce, what is your greatest hope that people will get as they go through the financial mindset fix and do the practices and engage with the many assessment tools, growth tools, what's your hope for people with this book? 
Well, I, I, again, I'm kind of grandiose in my thinking. So my greatest hope is that this is going to provide mental health and financial health recovery and resilience for people around the world. So we've, we've been living through a mental health and financial health global crisis, and this is a practical tool that I hope will be inspiring and empowering and a, a resource that people can go back to again and again as they deal with different challenges in their lives. And it's been my heart's desire to get this out in the world. I've been talking with Joyce Martyr. She's the author of the new book, The Financial Mindset Fix, a mental fitness program for an abundant life. Get the book and get in there. And it's really all about the work that's here and what it can deliver. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.